Hi everyone, I'm Salma Karashi. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience research podcast. Um, it's February 10th, uh, 2022, and today we're talking to Dan Butts. Do you go by Daniel or Dan? Dan. Thanks. Dan Butts, uh, who is Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Maryland College Park. Hi, Dan. Hi. Um, with us we've got Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. So Dan's group uses uh, data-driven systems-level approaches to understand sensory processing in cortical neurons from hierarchical computations to top-down influences of behavior. He's doing this uh, by using statistical models and machine learning to mine large-scale neurophysiological data sets collected in awake-behaving animals by many collaborators. <laughs> I take it you don't run a monkey lab yourself. Yeah, or a, no, or a I don't. I'm, I'm lucky to work with many collaborators. Great. So um, I kind of want to start just with this idea of, uh, like, one, one thing that's embedded in a lot of the recent stuff that I looked at is just that, that statistical modeling is, is, will drive the evolution of, of new theory about visual processing. Um, so I'm hoping you can say something about that in terms of the big ideas, um, because... When we look at theory, you know, you can talk about mechanistic theories and conceptual theories, and that's kind of, that 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 feels like you're trying to sort of or the new things, these new theories and new conceptual spaces will emerge from this somehow. But every bit of your work is really, really grounded in like classical Eubel and Weasel sort of first principles uh, properties of, of neurons that are recorded in really you know fixed sort of static. Um, condition. So I know your goal, as with all systems biology, is to move to more naturalistic behavior, larger data sets. Where are you, what are you, how do you sort of see these things evolving, these new conceptual ideas, and how much of it is grounded in classical versus some new space that we're going to inhabit? Yeah, so that's a, that's a big question, a great question. And um, I would say that, first of all, I distinguish between methodological and and the theories. So the statistical model is just a method and how you look at it, it's a method to essentially attach theories with data. Mm -hmm. And I think one extreme is that you could um, just put the data into a statistical model and the th there are a new theory will pop out. But I find that is probably unlikely, especially given the complexity um, of what's going on. And that really you have to almost be guided, um, the model should be guided by the theory and the statistical model will then validate it. On the other extreme, pretty much anyone you talk to who studies something will have a theory of how it happens. And the brain um, affords a lot of theories, but it's very hard to validate. And so the statistical model is meant to really connect these things. Um, but it needs, it needs theories to motivate. I don't think you can just blindly apply statistical models. And, um, and in that sense, so now referring to the, the hist historical basis, is that these, the theories sort of, of classical receptive fields, Hubel and Weasel, Mopshin, these are extremely well-validated basis for, I'd say, anything going forward. And of course, I, I would hope by by studying a naturalistic context and behaviorally relevant uh, context to discover something totally wild and new. But I, I do have a strong suspicion that it's going to very much depend and have to be consistent with what we know already. And that also reduces the space of models that we can look for. 
So this may be a step back, if you don't mind, but what, what is a statistical model exactly? And why is a statistical model different from a, whatever the deterministic model? Is that the alternative? Yes, uh, that's, that's a great way to step back. So, the, so, so, um, so I guess what, what I'm calling, um, what I call a regular model is something that you can put an input in and it'll, it'll give an output. In that sense, the statistical model is, is, is a model. It's something that um, has a mathematical structure, it has parameters, and whatever those parameters are set for, um, you can then give it inputs or let it go on its own if it's a if it's spontaneous and it will generate outputs. And the statistical modeling framework is a way to attach that model or a model that generates outputs and then fit the parameters um, using data. And so... So um, did, does it imply that that underlying mechanism is stochastic or is it just that there's enough unattributed uh, variability in a system that statistical methods are required? Yeah, so um, my understanding is anyway, you can use a, you can use this technique to fit a deterministic model. Um, the problem is, is you're going to start with the wrong parameters. In other words, you, the whole idea is to, to learn the parameters and then you'll end up with the full model. The statistical modeling approach lets you learn those parameters and initially, as a result, your output's going to be off and, the, and, and, and you need to then Figure out how to change those parameters to be correct. To be correct, and I guess one element of the statistics you're talking about is, of course, um, that there's, of course, you're going to be using noisy data, and you don't have enough, and so you have to maybe properly model the statistics of the distributions you expect. So noisy data means just highly variable data, or does it mean that there's some fundamentally random component of it? Yeah, so it could be, um, you know, that there's just um, some stochasticity in the data so you don't get the same thing every time. And if you could just have a model that tried to fit every time point, you could fit every time point, but that's not going to be able to predict randomness. So you would ideally want your model to sort of smooth over the, those elements of stochasticity by using the right, um, the right statistics to fit the parameters. It seems like one of the things about when you say statistical models that you take the statistics seriously. You don't necessarily have to answer your question, but if you're going to answer that question, then you need to understand the variability it, as it is. Whether it's you know, random or structured or something you don't understand, you need to understand what the variability uh, is like. And so part of it, instead of getting rid of the, the variability to find the real thing that you're interested in, it seems like a lot of statistical models spend a lot of time uh, modeling the variability appropriately. Now, that might help you get rid of it so that you understand what's going on underneath, and it might help you decide whether that variability is, you know, behavioral state variability or something else, or some, if you can't get at anything, then maybe you throw up your hands and say it's fundamentally stochastic. But you have to decide about all of those things, and so you really—it's a—it's a component of the approach, right? Is really to get at what that variability is. So do you have to decide because it seems to me that the, a lot of work is basically Rosetta Stone kind of thing. I'm giving this stimulus, and I'm looking for the component of activity that's related to that stimulus, 
And there's a component of the activity that's unrelated to my stimulus, and I don't know what it is. And I don't care, actually, because it's a big, I mean, I, fundamentally I care, but for purposes of this study, I don't. I'm just trying to extract that component of the network behavior that's related to my stimulus so that I can describe how the stimulus influences the network. And if it turned out, this is what I think I hear people say, because I don't do this work myself. Uh, if it turned out that the, that there was really, you know, that somehow there was a like Geyer counter in there and cosmic rays were causing it to be stochastic, that would be indistinguishable from the fact that it just might be super dimensional, way beyond anything that I can handle, and that's what's created. So, so these two these two comments, I think, really point out something that I think is very important about the approach, which which is why I think it's going to be important going forward, which is just thinking about the, the old classical studies and everything, and even how, how you would do work now, is, is if you wanted to measure something, like how a neuron responds to a stimulus, or you name it, and you know you do a single experiment, you get a single measurement, would you stop there? Um, you'd probably do it a couple times, right? Because some of the, some of the answer you got might be due to vari- variability. If you got the same answer, several times you could stop because it's deterministic and you don't need to measure it multiple times but in general you'd have to measure it more and when you look back to you know early studies of visions and how a lot of studies are designed what you do is you put lots of repeats in you present something over and over and then you can eliminate sources of variability that are unrelated to the stimulus the, the stimulus or you know the things you want to measure yeah. and um, and the problem is, is it means you have to be looking in a very small stimulus space because you only have a certain amount of experimental time. You can't present every stimulus. And this is the whole reason, in some sense, to use a model in the first place um, because you can't measure every stimulus. You, can't me- you, you, can, you can measure this stimulus, you can measure that stimulus, but then maybe you can extrapolate what happens in between. So if you have a mathematical function, you can sort of infer all the stimuli. And that's part of the statistical model, but the other, the other part is that you also don't get pres- many presentations of the stimulus, so you have to have a model for how to incorporate single measurements correctly and balance those against other measurements. So how do we construct the, the right model? I mean, that, of course, that's the uh, more difficult problem, I guess, because the model, if the model is essential to the discovery, it kind of reverses the order that people have traditionally thought about models. I make a discovery, and then I make a model of my discovery, um, partly just to prove its plausibility, and partly to pass it on to other people who are, can share my my discovery. Right? But but if the model is is, is a prerequisite for the discovery, then the model could be wrong, and the discovery could be ruined by that. Is that not true? Yeah. So that has to be so. So that's where, uh, that's maybe maybe some of the art of, of, of modeling, which is that you can say, I'm going to make, I'm gonna use like one of the models I talked about in my talk, I'm gonna use this form of model to say how the uh, neuron combines input from both eyes, binocular energy model. And now I'm going to use statistical model to fit all the parameters, and now I have all the parameters and it explains 30% of the variance. That's pretty good. It must be right. Yeah. And you know, and unfortunately, a lot of models these days can't explain a lot more because, either because of unexplainable variants, things that we 
don't know about, or because there's actually a better model out there. And so if you believe a model, you can test it out, but you get a number that is only meaningful compared to other models. And it still might not be too meaningful, because if you have one model that fits 25% of the variance and another that fits 35% of the variance, does that mean the 35% of the variance one is right? Just means it's maybe the 25 is right, is right, but you forgot to add a crucial component and so on. So, so it makes it hard. To, and, and so, it, but it does give you a means to actually assess models that exist or that you think of already. Um, I just say on the opposite now, we have this wonderful opposite extreme, which is sort of machine learning gives you these general networks that can sort of describe any data, as long as you have enough data to fit them, and that's an important thing. But if you do, you end up with something that can describe the system very well, but it typically describes it in an uninterpretable way. And, and I think everyone's wrestling with this in the field now, because the best is you could then derive an interpretable model from the uninterpretable one. And this is like the field of understandable AI. And that's possibly a, a hopeful expansion um, where you can kind of be agnostic to model and then let the model tell you. But right now, that's in its infancy. But if you make an assumption about hierarchical processing, even using these machine learning techniques, like I was imagining as you were talking or going through the last few bits <laughs> that you could sort of do massive data sets at each sort of area. This, like, this, this, this sort of dogma that we is never going to go away about areas in the visual stream, right? And you could sort of have these black boxes of deep learning, you know, these things. And is there a way to actually compare them and look incrementally at what's what the difference is? Because I have absolutely no understanding of what what I mean. All you can do is input and output output from these things. But can you actually look at the differences in in the network itself that emerges or the the process that emerges at each level of the hierarchy that you're presuming? Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, there's a lot of ways. So this is this is a very open question, and, and there's been a lot of good work um, addressing this. I have my own favorite way to address it, but um, but speaking, kind of speaking more generally, I think one of one of the validations comes. So w one of I'll say this, and you, you you all can tell me if this is down the right the right thing. But one of the early ways that this was done, almost like this, was to look at actually successful models of object recognition. So su successful models of machine vision, and they're they, they're what I, I would call sort of goal directed networks. They were deep neural networks that are basically trying to solve the same problem the visual system solves, and they came up with a solution that actually could um, distinguish objects. Um, kind of classify objects at sort of human levels, and then they, um, they 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 did this thing called transfer learning, which is they then tried to compare the units in the network, and two neurons recorded in V1 and V4 and IT, and say, well, the expectation is we made a hierarchical model that could solve object recognition um, using these principles. We, we now can compare that to the brain, and we should see that the lower levels connect to V1, and the, higher, the mid levels connect to V4 and IT. And, um, and they did, generally. Um, and there's this, um, there's, oh gosh, I now forgot the competition. There's a competition brain, um, darn, I don't want to forget on the podcast, but it'll come to me. But basically, 
you can design networks that actually have more of a correspondence to the neural, neural data and less of a correspondence. And it's now a challenge to try to incorporate principles that make your network not only better to do object recognition better, but also to resemble the neurons more. But resembling the neurons is sort of the statistical model, mm-hmm. modeling part. So what's it mean? It means that they have sort of receptive fields that resemble the neurons. It doesn't mean that architecture of the network has any resemblance to the architecture of the brain, because those networks usually have very little resemblance to the architecture of the brain. Yeah. Don't they? Yeah, but one vision, one vision is, is that ultimately it would resemble the neurons, at least at a, you know, at a general population comparison level, more precisely as you incorporated more and more of the real brain architecture and in fact might even help us understand why the brain, brain architecture is there. And I think that's one possible conception. You know, hey, let's just make it exactly like a neuro, the neurons in the brain and let's give it all the levels and then, oh, it's ob- object recognition and we've figured out all the principles the brain does. The problem is, is that's not the case. You can kind of get object recognition with a wide variety of networks and brain score, that's what it is. And then you can try to okay. judge and so an alternative approach is to actually fit the neurons directly. Um, and that's more the, the sort of approaches I take, which you call maybe more data-driven versus goal-driven networks. So can you either, has anybody tried or imagine? so one of the things that is difficult with uh, AI and brain comparisons and everybody wants flexibility in, in their AI because we're so flexible and stuff like that. And yeah. And some of it is is to focus, and then this comes to experimentally, and it gets back to the original thing about, you know, what the task is, uh, and really focus on the variety of the tasks that can be solved by a similar network, right? So either you go part way up, and what is the range? If you train it on one set of data, can you do another task? Either you back it off or retrain it faster, and then you decide which combination of tasks would be most like we use something. Yes. So that's one of the problems too, right? We don't really understand exactly what the brain is doing. And I especially like talking about this when we're talking about mouse vision, not because it's not interesting to study, but rather are the brain areas in the mouse organized to do object recognition and should you evaluate them by other metrics? Um, And that's also one reason I'm excited about sort of the directions our own researches, which is that, in fact, a lot of this, a lot of the sort of AI and machine learning tasks are done in this different environments than what the human visual system samples. So, one one thing is is that time matters a lot, I think, to the human visual system, and eye movements matter a lot. And um, how does that help you? Um, how does it help you recognize objects? It may, it may not, but it's a certainly different set of constraints and different sort of data that comes into the human visual system. And that, that might make it that it's more than just the task, but it's the whole behavioral context that, that might prevent artificial neural networks from getting closer to brains. Um, yeah. um. So I, I can, uh, yeah. So one of the it seems to me that one of the challenges is that that's that we inherited from our illustrious predecessors was this notion of specialization in the brain. So the visual pathway is a visual pathway, and, it's, and that's it. And 
and anything that happens in it that isn't visual is noise, and uh, by definition. And that's, uh, I think you've uh, implied at least that that's not exactly working, and that visual system may have signals that um, are not visual, at least in some levels, at least in the cortex maybe, and possibly other places too. And the, and the, um, the reason that's disturbing, <laughs> it's welcome, I think, but it's also disturbing because it's disturbing because it sort of takes the limits off. I mean, I might say, I'm going to be a visual system physiologist. I'm just going to study visual system and vision, and that's enough. It's a lifetime to do that. And to know what's going on in the rest of the brain is too much for me. I'm not going to, I don't want to do that. Luckily, I don't have to. Visual system is just the visual system. If it turns out the visual system isn't just the visual system, but, the, but there's a lot higher interconnectivity among parts of the cortex that are doing all these different things, then what's it do for our sort of prospects of nailing things down? Or is it just the dimensionality is going to just blow up, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, so that's, that's, that's yeah, that's very high-level high problem, I think. Um, and I think the extreme is, is if you look at um, why would you want to put all these constraints that the brain has? If you wanted to solve not a visual task, but if you wanted to solve um, input from the environment to result in the right behavior task, why would you keep a separate visual system and a separate auditory system? Why not just, you know, use it all? If, if, you, if you gave this to sort of a, a very well-done, you know, deep neural network, it, it probably would mix these things. Mm -hmm. um, but presumably there's constraints in our brains, as we inherited from our ancestors, as well as probably utility in segregating signals. And it, it gets you to ask, though, what is the purpose of having these separate brain areas? Why is everyone not just have this big mush? And there's probably both anatomical evolutionary constraints and also computational constraints that it's very good to keep similar types of processing together. Don't you think so, someone has to relate to the to the question of some uh, perceptual invariance, right? So if everything's all mushed together, like if it's loud, does you know does that picture look different uh, than if it's soft in the room? And if everything's all coming in the thing, like how do you keep it the same? And then the, in the next minute that I have to do something with it, how am I going to recognize it's the same thing if it's you know, if it smells bad in here or something, but isn't right? Isn't it true at the neural level that the responses are not the same and that? Well, so but so that's <laughs> but that's the question of why. So maybe, and you certainly don't want everything completely the same because then what you do is you silo things up to the homunculus that puts it all together, right? Um, so I think there may be flip sides of the same question, right? So you you want to keep things separate so that properties, you know, propagate in time and predict the future uh, and unless they're really tightly coupled, your different senses won't be necessarily coupled for things in the world. So, so, so I have a, what I hope a quick story to, to sort of emphasize your point a little bit, which is it's, it's, I'll, I'll, I'll do it both with color and binocular vision, which is I suggested in my talk that one reason 
there's a lot of V1 neurons that actually um, maintain monocular information. And so they mix it together, but you can still extract monocular information. And why not go all the way up? And then, for example, if you need depth, extract it at a very high level and not, um, not extract it at a low level. And likewise, in V1, there's areas that are, seem very specialized to, to, to process color and almost separate color, and it corresponds, the um, globs in V1 correspond to globs in V4, and this, this sort of very sensitive, like almost separating uh, one visual feature out. And why not just like keep all color mixed in with everything else? And it's exactly this. I think there's some features that you want to maybe extract where they exist, like in V1, pull them out before you put these invariances because it's much easier to recognize an object without having to recognize every color of every object or recognize it whether you see it with one eye or the other eye. Um, it's very easy to just have an invariance and say, I'm not looking at one visual stream um, instead of each different colored visual stream. But then you still need that color information, so you've got to peel it off and then use it later. And so this sort of specializations along the pathway might be for exactly separating or segregating information that could be computed, and then you want to sort of get rid of it for other sort of computations. It seems like there might be an analog to that with, so there, I mean, there already is in terms of which features get mapped, like topologically on the cortex, right? And that varies by, by species. So some of them, you know, you'll have different, say, binocularity, right? And then in some species, they'll have patches, patches in the cortex that'll be matching that, and other times it's salt and pepper, and it's not really mapped. Um, so maybe that's uh, just a different relevant, uh, you know, relative importance of keeping that feature more or less segregated locally. Um, but you can imagine that happening in terms of some of these modulation type effects about what gets mixed and what doesn't may be different for different species that have different constraints on what's important. Uh, and I don't know whether it'll go beyond the mapping distinction. There you have a real physical segregation that you can look at. But maybe there's a physiological invariances that'll be really important for some species and not for someone else. Yeah, that would be, depend on behavior and, and anatomical constraints. And For example, the mouse, which is salt and pepper, has a much smaller cortex in general, but also has different behavioral contexts and might be using it for different, different things. And that would be hopefully it's a complexity, right? Because it's not like there's, you can say, hey, there's one optimal way to do it, and that's the way the brain does it. But the, presumably, there's different behaviorally relevant things, there's different anatomical constraints, and it's used in different ways. But do you just imagine as we get further into more unconstrained nat natural behavior that we're just going to find Completely, every. I mean, the fact, the whole idea of segregation comes from these really stereotyped tasks, overlearned things that are really limited to reduced dimensions and time lock everything. And when you're out in this like space that doesn't have anything delimiting anything, I mean, why would you see any segregation at the level of the neurons when you're looking at large populations? I mean, do you think it's a byproduct of the way these these data sets were developed early on, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's an important question to be asking 
for all the experiments, and, and, and I guess there's an, an assumption going into wanting to study natural vision is that this is actually going to be this, the combination of processes that the system actually has been designed to handle, and so that, um, that you'll see everything aligned. It's something like, for example, that I've always wondered about, which um, is this whole idea of covert attention and using that as a method for attention. We're used to putting our eyes on things we're attending to. Yeah, when do we ever do covert? I guess if you're spying yeah. on someone <laughs> and you don't want them to know. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And um, and so it's. I mean, we can do it, and it's definitely something worth being studied. But will things get actually simpler when we actually are able to study in the fovea, which is, of course, one of the goals mm. of my research, when we actually see that, oh, now we're attending with our phobias and we're seeing how that's affecting visual processing. So your approach is really to tackle a particular problem in vision and then build a model sort of around that. But you have to make a decision about whether you're going to go top down or bot- I mean, bot- more bottom up in the data that you presented today in terms of looking at the you know disparities and stuff like that. But now, but you did mention goal-directed stuff and all these hidden variables that have to do with things like attention that you're, I mean, presumably um, not necessarily going to be able to constrain. But you have, I mean, they, they're, it seems like you would have to build the model to to make some assumptions about what, whether you're building representations or you're sort of modulating things from the top down. And I mean, is there a point in the, where you could sort of do everything all at once, or is that the, is that the point? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the, the, the difficulty is connecting, connecting the bottom up and top down. Yeah. And I guess what you're seeing is, maybe I seem a little agnostic about what the right what the right approach is, and in some sense, I think that they're both good approaches, and we want to we want to meld them. And in some sense, I think actually, pri- you know, for example, r- pr- vision and primate and rodent are f- sort of fundamentally different. Not necessarily, just fundamental fundamental ways are the same, but they're different for some of these reasons. But the rodent presents a good model of of something where you have an e- might, might have an easier way to go from sort of first principles, receptive fields in V1 to something behavioral um, because there might be fewer areas that might be governed a lot by superior colliculus. You have to make sure you include the superior colliculus, but there's, that might be a great way to connect it where the primate brain with all the visual areas makes it a lot harder to make that full connection. But of course, there's less going on in the primate, in possibly V1 in the primate brain for that same reason that might make us able to isolate certain factors like the more subtle effect of attention or um, decisions or, or um, what your sensory motor task is. And having something subtle that only perturbs receptive fields makes everything easier to measure. So I'm kind of trying to do both. So it seems like you... You know, this is the way science goes. I mean, people are interested in the vision, meaning, like, I want to understand how they process different visual stimuli, and then maybe people are interested in effects of, you know, what's the memory trace for fear conditioning? Like, I don't know, whether it's auditory stimuli, right? And then you want to get reward-based things, and you have people that study attention. Uh, 
And so you manipulate the thing that you're interested in and try to keep the other things roughly, you know, accounted for and constant-ish. Uh, some of it is, hopefully we can get beyond maybe ignoring them and just averaging over many, many things. But it seems like uh, you're never going to get away from that, like control, modulating, experimentally modulating one thing. I mean, I don't know about never, but this idea that we'll just have, you know, have all these sensors and the mouse is going to run around and do all the stuff that they normally do and then we'll just extract the data uh, maybe someday. But uh, the question is whether people need to across, so, so if you're studying one issue, whether you understand models, whether you can have enough um, so that the thing that you're trying to at least measure or control for is more like the the fitted parameters of a statistical model rather than the response to a couple of different super simplified stimuli, right? So you're, you're building, as the understanding gets better at each thing, your framework that can handle more, what you're trying to control and worry about whether you control is a lot more sophisticated across things. You're still just modulating the thing that you're modulating in, but you're just way better at thinking about the other stuff that could go wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I guess, you know, in, in light of the sort of statistical models, it's almost that there's, there's certain places in the field where I think we've hit walls because actually the answer might be more complex than we can sort of manipulate the things that we are easy to manipulate. And so um, I agree just sort of having an animal run around and do things in a completely uncontrolled way is, is sort of, I can, I can imagine that can only tell you less. But if you could find a way to sort of, and this is where I, why I use this term naturalistic, is like natural is like what we're doing right now and we're doing 20 things right now. If there's a way you can kind of go a step in the direction to see some of the complexity but control other things, that's the best experiments. And, and which ones we do have to meld with the kind of models we can fit and the kinds of things we can control. And the things that are relevant to the animal, of course. So you don't dream of a day when we can record everything at once and just turn the animal loose well, and just treat the brain as a single big network? Call, yeah, I mean, the definition of a, of a population is kind of critical in when we're talking about population coding. And somebody might say, oh, only this cell type is my population. You might say, the whole cortex with its 50 different cell types is my population. Why couldn't I just say the whole brain with the you know one thousand six hundred twenty-two cell types is my population? Yeah, well, ultimately you got to figure something out. So, just as an example, and this is this might be more of an art than you know the science, mm -hmm. but um, and I, I'm I'm being optimistic by talking about this. But we just um, I just was was grateful to be funded by NSF with uh, two collaborators. It's led by Farron Briggs and um, also Ralph Hafner, and. The idea that was developed by Farron was she's very good at um, recording from anesthetized animals. And now how about have them run around an arena and while measuring the same neurons and in V1. And we know what the, they're going to respond, how they're going to respond to stimuli during anesthesia. This has been well studied. So what could happen? And to me, if you ask the question right, it's kind of interesting either way. The only, the only thing that would be maybe bad at first is if it's just completely unrecognizable what happens. Like if the receptive fields go away, 
and we just don't know what's going on. Yeah. But chances are, we can start with uh, anesthetize, and we can say, all we've done is let it move around. And maybe you can imagine, even let's do head fix first, and you know, work up, and then you can see what's changed, and then transition. Um, but the hope is, because we're in V1, that we'll have a lot of things that we can lean against to leverage the, the things that are new. But the hope is also that it's not exactly the same, because otherwise we spent a lot of time just doing something complicated that gave us the same answer back. Yeah, what would, would you want? I mean, it's, there's something gratifying about the fact that you do extract those same core expectations, but uh, at least for V1, yeah. But, yeah, so. I mean, it, yeah, it'd be disappointing if nothing, if nothing changed, right? Would it? <laughs> I don't know. Well, it I would got, be an I don't answer. I to worry about that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, I, I, I think something's going to change. Something might change. The disappointing <laughs> thing would be is if we can't figure out what changed. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So this is the kind of thing that you're most excited about. What, what what's sort of on the horizon in terms of the... the are, you, are you involved in planning this behavioral stuff as well? Is that something that you get to sort of, like your pie-in-the-sky experiment and pitch it and see could get it I've I've had maybe the fortune to do less of that because I'm actually not really uh, <laughs> that's not my uh, my area of expertise although I find it fascinating. Um, it's hard but to there's build a, a good behavioral experiment. Yeah, yeah I, exactly. In fact, it's really I, from what I tell to design a good one, it's very hard. Um, and um, but that's where this whole collaboration is really fun because. Um, I can work with experts that have figured out a way to do these things and I can advise because there's data that you can fit and data you can't and there's an amount of data you need and a kind of model and it's not just, oh, can you fit this data? It's like, well, what do you think is going on? And um, so so, I'm, cur- cur- I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no. But I'm curious about the future. Are you in the, are, are, is this... Are you training people that are then becoming experimentalists or are experimentalists coming to you and developing methods? Because, I mean, the old tradition is sort of the people did do everything, right? And in, in, in many areas, things are sort of getting channeled a bit where you need multiple collaborators to do all these big, expensive, heavy, mathematically rigorous things. So are... How, what is, what's the future for how these sorts of studies are going to come about? It's going to continue to be sort of segregated people collaborating with one another, or is there sort of a changing landscape of the field? Yeah, so the, the, I think the landscape's been changing a lot in ways I generally, um, I generally really appreciate. Um, there's two big things that have happened. First of all, collaborative projects and big collaborative projects are now much more regularly funded um, it's, you know, there's, I think, still working out the bugs, but a lot of the brain initiative things are very exciting combined computational and experimental projects. For example, the NIH and NSF has also been um, funding things. They've been had to program the CRCNS program, which has been around a while, which is also lovely in this respect. So it's actively encouraging collaborations. Another thing that's been, that I think has come from the funding agencies and and now also the journals is 
um, publishing data and publishing code. And that's where taking big general data sets, like the kinds even we've been talking about of the animal going crazy and running around while you're recording from thousands of neurons, I do feel that that kind of data is going to be useful eventually once we can tie down its parts. And maybe even useful now because someone knows how to tie down its parts. And so doing these sort of more general, natural experiments for a specific purpose, but then putting the data online and saying, well, this is my idea and here's what I got, and my model fit 35% of the variance, that still gives room for someone to come back and say, well, what if we consider this thing? And did you have a video on the animal? You did? Well, why don't you study it this way? And then they get 50%. And that's, that's without having to do any more experiments. That's just the ideas coming back and having some general data sets. So there's a combination. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And uh, this has been Neuroscientist Talks About.